Psalm 32 is the text, and we are on page 462 of our Pew Bible, if you're using the Bible in front of you. The most important thing about you as a Christian is that you do not belong to yourself. You belong to God. Everything about you, everything you are, all of you, you belong to God. Whether you live or whether you die, you are God's. And that is good news. When we think about how we belong to God, whether we live or whether we die, in everything, in all of our lives, we have joy. We are people who are blessed. We're people that others look at and say, I wish I was like that person. But how often do we forget that we belong to God, whether we live or whether we die? We forget the good news, and our lives are not blessed. (laughs) They're not the kind of lives that other people look at and say, I wish I was like that. We need to be reminded. We need to be reminded what the good news is, And we need to be reminded what the blessed life means. And that is what we've got in this morning's reading from Psalm 32. And what I'd like to do this morning is to work through Psalm 32 with you and to think about what the author uh, described here as David describes as the blessed life, the sort of life that anyone would want. Psalm 32 is uh, titled a maskil in our Bibles. We don't know what that means <laughs> exactly. It's, a, it's a, some kind of musical term, but it's related to the word for instruction. And that's probably what we've got in this text, is a song that's designed to present instruction. And it begins with a public pron- pronouncement. It begins in a service of worship like this one, where David stands up and he says, verses 1 and 2, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Blessed is the one whose uh, sin is covered. Blessed is the man in whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. There's something surprising about this description of the blessed person. The blessed person isn't the person who always does the right thing. Elsewhere in Scripture, we'll have a statement that the the blameless person is one who is blessed. But here, it's not a blameless person who's blessed. It's a sinner who is blessed. And not just an ordinary sinner, a comprehensive sinner. Look at your text. Three different words for sin in these two verses. There's the word sin, which is the general act of falling short of what God wants for us, not meeting a standard. There's transgression, which is missing the standard on purpose, (laughs) knowing what was expected, what we were supposed to do, and intentionally deciding not to do it and violating it. There's iniquity. That's the state that results from you violating God's will, from running contrary to God. It means being bent and being twisted. It's the sinner, the transgressor, the iniquitous person who's blessed in Psalm 32. But they're not blessed 
because they're sinners. They're blessed because they're forgiven. Just as they are comprehensive sinners, total sinners, in their sin and their transgression and their iniquity, so they are forgiven comprehensively. So look at the text. You've got three different ways of talking about sin being forgiven. The first is in verse 1. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Forgiven literally means lifted, taken up. The picture is that there you were with a backpack full of weights and somebody strong came along and pulled it away from you and it's gone. There's an image of uh, sin being covered up. The picture is that you were naked and embarrassed and ashamed and somebody saw you and pitied you and they came with a blanket and they, they, put, they put the blanket over you to cover you up. There's an image of accounting. There was a list of all these offenses against you, these things that you had done, guilty, 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 and the judge came along and just wiped the slate clean with his hand. Forgiven. The person is blessed, not who doesn't need forgiveness. <laughs> it's the person who is forgiven who is blessed. In whose spirit there is no deceit. How do we talk about someone having no deceit in their spirit if we know that they're a comprehensive sinner? The reference here is not to uh, general honesty in a person's life, as though you always told the truth. You're talking about something very specific. There's no deceit in the person's heart who decides, I'm going to confess my sin to God. The blessed person is the forgiven person, and the forgiven person is the person who acknowledges and confesses and admits to God, I'm a sinner, save me. That's the message of Psalm 32 in a nutshell. Verses 1 and 2, the psalmist makes this proclamation, this announcement about what the blessed person is like. And then in the rest of the psalm, what you've got is a personal testimony of how it worked out in his own life. Look at verses uh, 3 and 4. The psalmist speaks of a time in his life before he had learned to confess sin. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. The psalmist says it was a time of silence in his life when he kept his mouth closed about his sin. He was silent about his sin, but there was no quiet in his life. Look what he's talking about. I was, I was groaning all day long, night and day. The word used here for groaning isn't a little, I'm uncomfortable. It's rah! It's the sound a lion makes. In my silence, I was roaring all day long because I was miserable. I felt my bones rotting away. I felt like there was a hand pressing down heavily upon me. I felt my strength dried up and taken away like I was out in Death Valley in the middle of August. I was miserable when I confessed my sin, or before I confessed my sin. Something peculiar about one of these images, 
And that's the image of the hand pushing down on the psalmist. It's not just a weight was on me, it's your hand was pressing down upon me. Your hand. The psalmist is now talking to God. There hasn't been any indication in the psalm so far who the psalmist is addressing. And now, in the fourth verse, we realize the psalmist is making a confession before God. And this first time that a reference to God appears in the text is so significant for us because it shows us what the psalmist realizes in his misery, which is that he's not just guilty in a subjective sense. He doesn't just feel bad. He's done, he's done things that are wrong and he feels bad. He's, he's guilty in an objective sense. He's actually offended someone else. His misery and his sin isn't just about him. He's miserable in his sin because he has sinned against a holy God. At the end of verse 4, there's the word selah. Don't know what the word means exactly, but a lot of people think it's a, a musical pause of some kind. Maybe we should not just pass over it quickly. Maybe we should look at the selah and pause and reflect and think about our own sin. The first thing that we must know in order to experience the fact that we belong to Jesus Christ and not to ourselves is joy, is the depth of our sin against God. Every one of us as Christians continually is in need of forgiveness before God for our sin. In verse 5, there's a shift. The psalmist realizes that his sin is against a holy God, and he responds instantly in confession. I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. Again, all, five, all three words for sin repeated in this passage. Sin, transgression, iniquity. But notice, what does he say this time when he speaks about sin, transgression, and iniquity? My sin, my transgression, my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. There's no record of what the psalmist says in his confession. There's no long prayer that has the content of the things that he'd done wrong and how he confessed it. It just says, I express my intention to confess my sin to God, and right away, God jumps on it and forgives the psalmist. You remember the story of the prodigal son from the Gospel of Luke? The son sins against his father, runs off, shames his family, lives for himself, wastes his money, and then wakes up in a pigsty, and thinks, what am I doing? And then turns and comes running back to the Father. And where do we find the Father in Jesus' parable in the story? Yeah, he, he's out there in the field watching. He's looking, and while the sun is a long way off, Jesus says, the Father comes running out to meet him. He doesn't let him finish his request for forgiveness. 
The psalmist is miserable for his sin, and God is punishing the psalmist for his sin, not because God's cruel or vindictive. The psalmist isn't miserable because God doesn't want to forgive. The psalmist is miserable because he refuses to confess. God's eager to forgive. And as soon as the psalmist brings his sin before God, he confesses it. And at the end of verse 5, another selah, another time to pause and reflect. Never again in, Psalm, in the 11 verses of Psalm 32 does a word for sin appear. It's gone. The first five verses have been sin, 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 sin. You forgave the guilt of my sin, and it's gone. It's wiped away. This is the blessed person. Verses 1 through 5, we've got a report of somebody who was miserable, who had a life that no one else would want. And he confesses his sin to God, and by God's grace, he becomes a person that everyone would want to be like, a person who's been forgiven. Verses 6 and 7 give us a picture of the person who has experienced God's forgiveness. And I want us to note how the psalmist is thinking after he's been forgiven. Verse 6, Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. And then in verse 7, You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. This person who was once miserable in sin and thinking about his own misery and his own need to be forgiven and his own burden confesses it and has that burden wiped away and now who's the psalmist thinking about? <laughs> Not himself anymore. It's an old picture for the sinner from the time of the Reformation is of a circle that's curved in and twisted and bent on itself. Somebody's twisted by their own sin so that all they can do is think about themselves and how miserable they are. They're stuck. Psalmist confesses his sin. The sin is wiped away. His head is lifted up. And now the first thing he does is pray to God for neighbors. I wish everybody had this experience that I have just had. I wish everyone was like this because I know that when the storms of life come against my friends, my family members, the people around me, everyone that I know, I know that when those storms come, you will deliver them just as you have delivered me. So the psalmist isn't concerned about himself, he's concerned about others, and he's concerned about God. Verse 7 is a spontaneous expression of praise. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Probably the last phrase is a reference to a worship service like this one. The psalmist stands in the middle of a room like this, 
talks about the blessedness of being forgiven, gives this testimony, prays for his neighbors, praises God and looks around him and sees all of the other people in the congregation ready to praise God and he rejoices. Selah. Some interpreters think that in verse 8, the psalmist continues to speak, that he turns from speaking to God, to God to addressing the congregation directly. But I think a better way to read this text is to see verse 8 as God's answer to the psalmist's prayer. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. In other words, we know that you're prone to sin. <laughs> that was the first thing we knew about you, and we know that I'm ready to forgive, and we know that your heart has been changed so that you're not thinking about yourself and how unworthy you are and how you can't do better <laughs> by yourself. We know that your, your thoughts have been changed, and now you, you love your neighbors, you're thinking of your neighbors, and now you, you love me, and now you want to worship me. And now I promise that I will be with you. I will be with you in your life as you live to keep you from trouble. I promise that I will keep my eye upon you. Not I'll be spying on you, but I will be watching attentively with you to guide you in the path that you should go. This is a blessed person. Not the person who's groaning about sin. Not the person who's miserable because of transgression. It's the person who's been set free from all of that so that they can love God and love their neighbors so that they can follow God's leading. And that's the task that's set before the psalmist now. His job as one who belongs in life and in death to God is not to avoid sin, stop sinning, don't sin. It's not to set out rules for his life, to make sure that he becomes holier and holier over time so that he sets a, a length of time that he's supposed to pray every day or that he, he, he decides that he's going to memorize so many Bible verses a week or he's going to do so many good deeds this month or, he, he, or he's going to, or he's going to try to, to make himself more righteous in some way. All of the things that can be done are good things. But the psalmist focuses on doing those good things. The psalmist focuses on being forgiven and on the God who's done this for him and the promise that this God has made to be with him always. This is a promise not just for the psalmist. It's a promise for you. You're a sinner. You need forgiveness. If you're not careful, you'll be bent in on yourself like a circle. You need to be freed. And what's offered freely, God is eager to forgive. Verses 9 through 11, the psalmist turns to the, speak to the congregation as a whole. And he tells them in verse 9, Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding which must be curbed with bit and bridle, 
or it will not stay near you. In other words, don't be, don't be ignorant and stubborn like an animal. Don't be the way I was, where I had to get to this point of absolute and total misery before I was willing to do what was in my own interests. Come right away, learn from my example, confess your sin, participate in the life of the blessed. And then in verse 10, he directs them to, to, to look around at the world around them. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. It's a miserable life to live contrary to what God wants. But steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. The contrast in verse 11 is not between the wicked and the righteous. Wicked people are bad, righteous people are good, therefore be a righteous person because you'll be happier. The contrast is between the wicked person who refuses to bring sin before God in confession and to trust and rely on God and the person who trusts. Don't be wicked. Be a person who trusts in the Lord and you will be surrounded with steadfast love. The last word of exhortation in the psalm is in verse 11. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Those who trust in the Lord are made righteous by God's grace. Friends, this is a mass kill for us. It is an instruction for us. It's a hymn. It's been performed. We've read it and meditated on it. We know what the blessed life is. Now, we live it. Not by engaging in self-improvement programs where we focus really, really hard on avoiding sin and really, really hard on only doing good things. But when we turn our attention to the God who has forgiven us in Jesus Christ and set ourselves apart joyously together to live in obedience to him. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go, God says to us this morning. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous. Shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Amen.